You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Welcome to Episode 8 of Season 1. My guest today is Luke Norsworthy, who's one of my favorite podcasters. Luke is gifted in getting interesting guests on his show, but he's also really good at getting a good conversation going. I'm still learning to podcast and interview, and as you'll hear in this interview with Luke, you'll hear Luke asking me some questions once in a while, and rather than answering them, I probably spent too much time trying to get the attention back on him. He's just a natural conversationalist, and he has a natural curiosity about him that I just find really endearing. Luke's also a pastor, and he recently wrote a fascinating book on his own journey with doubt. The book is called God Over Good. Luke's a natural writer, and his quirk and his humor come through, but he also has profound moments in the book, and we get into some of those moments in the interview. But my favorite part of his book is that he went through doubt in God while being a pastor, and I think that gives him a unique perspective on leadership anxiety. You know, one of the great sources of leadership anxiety is doubt, whether it's doubt in yourself or doubt in God. And of course, doubt in God is exacerbated when you're leading people to faith in God. That's why I wanted Luke on the show, to talk about doubt in God while leading God's people. I started our interview by asking Luke why he wrote God Over Good, and what it's about. The book is really my own attempt to make sense of my uh, spiritual journey. It was written down not so much as, uh, like the early drafts of what became the book were not written down as early drafts of a book. It was me processing my own stuff. And years later, uh, Baker, publisher, uh, got on board and they decided, hey, let's turn this into a book. Uh, And so it, it never was... Like the beginning process was never, hey, I'm going to try to write a nonfiction book. It was, I've got to make sense of my own faith and make sense of the things that I'm going through. And this can be some sort of therapeutic process that in the end, maybe uh, now that it's a book, I hope it helps other people. But all along, it wasn't, it was written for me to make sense of things for myself. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I've gone on my own doubt journey and I feel like I've read a ton of books on doubt. And uh, I think the two things that were unique about your book is one is just the sheer quirkiness of it. I just found <laughs> quite delightful. I've got a couple of questions on that. But the, uh, the other unique aspect, Luke, was I think you're one of the few authors to write on doubt while you're leading a community of faith. I thought that was a fascinating situation. So let's start with the quirk. Okay. Um, what, so I know probably several people haven't read the book yet. I'd encourage folks to go out and grab this book. But early on, you set up what must be known as the most romantic meaningful metaphor ever where you compare the exoskeleton of an ant with the spine of a baby. <laughs> Can you? Uh... Yeah. Uh, first of all, it is a pretty demented uh, metaphor. And my wife, when she first read it, uh, she was like, this is really demented, Luke. And my agent, I think, expressed a similar uh, sense of what in the world are you doing? But I was trying to articulate the difference of a faith that's established on the idea that I'm going to get security and answer everything right, and I have all the uh, have all of my 
I's dotted and T's crossed, and that's going to give me a sense of security versus a faith that is something that grows with you, that that gives you room to continue to develop and mature. And so an, an ant is born with this uh, thin, crusty shell, and it doesn't have any room really to to progress in uh, the, dare I say, like the food chain. It is what it is. Whereas a baby, it's born extremely vulnerable, doesn't have a whole lot of defenses, but you give it time, and it can become it can become something. It can become the apex predator, dare I say, uh, transcends where it started. And I think that's the metaphor I'm trying to work with: is that if you if you begin your faith with something that has this sort of uh, malleability, it can grow. But it doesn't have to. Uh, it, but it won't give you all the security that easy answers will. Yeah. So I think one of the things that's terrifying for people when they first go through this like deconstruction phase that you mentioned is they don't realize it's a deconstruction phase. They just think they're losing their faith. Yeah. yeah. Could you talk to that? Yeah, I don't think people think of it as a phase. I, I know for me, and maybe you could speak to your own experience, but I didn't think of it as a phase. I just felt like, yeah, this isn't working anymore. It's falling apart. And I, I, I didn't have the language. I didn't have the parameters to go, this is kind of a normal stage of life. This is part of the faith development process. And I, I, I think a lot of people are talking about this now and having that sort of... Uh, construction, deconstruction, reconstruction, or order, disorder, reorder, or the second naivete in the desert language from record. We didn't, I, I didn't have those resources given to me then. So it was just like, oh my goodness, this, this is how it's always going to be. And, and for me, I think of anxiety often presents itself as saying, what you're in right now is how it's always going to be. Right. Right. So once you started going through that, for somebody who's just now beginning that journey, what would you say to them? Well, I would say what you said, like, this is a phase, like, this is normal, this is a normative experience for many people of faith. And not everyone goes through this. I have people I work with who yep. are uh, people of great faith and deeply committed followers of Jesus who never went through deconstruction. But there's a lot of us who have. And if that is you, know that there is, as the book of Hebrews describes, a great cloud of witnesses. There are a lot of people who've gone through this before you. And so you're not alone. You're not isolated. Don't keep this to yourself. Don't feel like this is uh, a reflection of you know your lack of faith or your poor discipleship. This is part of the spiritual journey. So for you, would you say that you have gone through one long series of deconstruction reconstruction or it, is this an ongoing do you have multiple phases i guess is what i'm asking i would assume that there's a life cycle to this that there are different seasons that have these these sort of uh construction deconstruction reconstruction moments and phases in it and so i would hate to think that like i'm done with this um i, I would say where i am at 37 is substantially different than where i was at 27 and the things that i'm wrestling with now are not the same things that i was processing and writing about when I started writing this book. And so I I didn't know at the time, looking back in hindsight, I can see, yes, something happened. You've kind of gone through a stage that you're not in anymore, but I'm not, um, I I don't feel like I'm qualified to say at 37, if I'll never go through something like this again. Yeah. But having been through it once, it'll be less terrifying the next time I would imagine. Uh, Yeah, I would, I would sure hope so. And I don't. I mean, you've described your own experience like this when you're uh, hospital chaplaincy, going through seminary. Uh, you've been around a few years. Do you feel like that you're going to go back through something like that, or if you did, would you have the same fear? Yeah, I have. I mean, I have a decade on you. I'm I'm now technically middle aged, and uh, <laughs> I think I've been through it, man, three to five times. Hard to say. 
First really? time, yep. First time was the hardest and the longest, but it's because I didn't understand, as you mentioned, that I was going through it. And then it, it just does kind of, it's, it does feel to me like you keep peeling the same apple. You keep going round and round the same idea, but I don't know, man, it's less terrifying or. So s- same ideas, like they're the same questions that mm-hmm. you had years before they, they present back to you again? Yeah, for me, they do. I think it is customized for everybody, but for me, it's generally the same source of doubt. Are there um, precipitating incidents that, that show up and say this oh, major crisis, therefore the questions come up, or do they come up out of the blue? I, I, yeah, so, you know, I'm supposed to be interviewing you here. So Sorry about that. Be, My bad. It's, your, it's a My bad. muscle memory for you. Yeah, I can't help yeah. it. Yeah, I, I would say for me, one of the things that really helped me in my doubt is I figured out that God would show up in a way that was tangible, visceral, it was very moving. And then over a period of time, sometimes days, sometimes months, I'd look back on that and decide it wasn't God. I'd I'd rationalize it away. Oh, yeah. And that really helped me figure out, that's how I really started to have a breakthrough, is when I realized that I was too rational. You know, you and I both in the same kind of movement of churches. We don't really have much room for the Holy Spirit, for example. And so God would show up in these incredible ways. And in the moment, it was incredible. And then later I'd be like, you know what? I don't think that was God. I think I, I, think I can wow. find a rational answer. So that helped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you join the, uh, the Israelites who they see these amazing miracles yeah. and then they're like, God, why'd you bring us out? Or Moses, yeah. why'd you bring us out here to die? Yep. And you go, well, you just went through the Exodus. You of all people should never uh, grumble or complain, but, but they do. And that, that, that's us. But it's neat that you like probably now have that that tool that you can reach into yep. your back pocket and go, okay, this is what's going to happen. This is how my doubt presents itself to me. Yeah. And going so going forward, are you able to name that and go, okay, this is this is me doubting God again, or, yeah. or doubting the legitimacy of what that was? Yeah, and it is, I think it's also complex. Like I, I think when doubt has been a companion for a while, you get to see more of its benefits, so you're less afraid of it, and you know you're, you're starting to look for where faith is growing and deepening rather than trying to just manage the doubt. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Well, hey, back to you. Oh, so- sorry. <laughs> sorry. Like you said, muscle memory. Yeah. So I've heard a lot of people talk about, you know, how the negatives can have more power than the positives, but I love the way you said it. You, uh, I'm going to quote you here. You said, unlike joy, suffering doesn't add, suffering multiplies. I'd love to hear more from you about that. I thought that was profound. I I wish I would have cited where I got that from, but the idea of grief not adding but multiplying comes from uh, my friend Mike Cope, who is Church of Christ preacher, uh, now runs Pepperdine's Bible Lectures, and he, um, I'm trying to figure out the age that this happened, uh, his daughter Megan uh, passed away, maybe she was 12-ish, something like that, she was born uh, with special needs, lived to be 12, passed away, and then soon after that, uh, his nephew passed away after uh, a freak football practice, something happens, undiagnosed problem, he passes away. Wow. Fast forward a few more years, and then now his youngest child, his uh, youngest son Chris, was coming back from church, uh, a church trip to Dallas or something like that, and there is a van accident, and the boy next to him passes away and Chris is life flighted in the moment Mike didn't know if his son's going to make it or not his his oldest son is like the paragon of like every Texas parent's dream he's a football captain starting linebacker 
is a doctor now. Um, his middle child passes away from illness. Youngest child passes or uh, is in this car accident, terrified. Oh my goodness, is this going to happen again with our third child? And as he's described that, he said, "These things. Are, is, it's not like two plus one plus. It, it's it's that they multiply. Like each one brings in all the pain from before and makes it exponentially harder than what happened in the past." And so I, I think joy, like you take these moments and, oh, this is great. Let me add this to another uh, moment. But it seems that that grief and sorrow and, and hurt becomes very historical. You, you know, the, probably the old line about marriage fights is that you don't want to get uh, hysterical, but right. you can get historical. Right. And so you bring up everything from the past. It seems that that hurt and pain has a way of just bringing all the memories of the pain back up with it. Yeah. So when you're doing that in your own life, do you have any tools or disciplines or habits that help you either right size it or put it in perspective or what do you do? Yeah. One of the things that, that one of my issues is that I tend to snowball stuff. And so if there's one piece of anxiety or, or, or it's like fear or, or it's pain is that it like everything just comes together and it all just turns into this big snowball that's kind of running head forward or straight forward at me that I can't overcome. And what I've learned is let's, let's pick out each piece one at a time. And I can't deal with all of them, but I know I can deal with one at a time. And so I'm, I'm, I'm working to, to pull the, like this big old avalanche into individual snowballs that I can handle one at a time. And so I'm moving away from letting it be historical, moving away from letting it accumulate all the, the pain and looking at one at a time. Yeah, that's good. All right, let's talk about what I think is probably the most beneficial part of the book for me. You write a book on doubt while being a preacher. So that means that you had to manage your own doubt while leading people in faith. Uh, just tell us, first of all, about what that was like for you and what that's been like for your congregation. You know, I, I think you should interview some of my uh, church members about that one. I think the parishioners would give you a better answer um, to some degree. But but for me, and let me go back to Mike Hope. This is a second shout-out to him. So when Mike's daughter or son was in the hospital— he has said that some of the only times that he prayed during that season when he didn't know if his youngest son would make it, and he did, um, was the only time he prayed was when he was on stage on Sunday morning. And that there's something about the ritual of we're going to do this every week, and we're going to receive the sacraments, we're going to open Scripture, we're going to celebrate the communion of the saints, and that's going to be this kind of anchoring practice that keeps me going. And for me, I, I love my job. Like even when my faith didn't make sense, I love getting to be a preacher. I love, I love the study. I love the research. I I love getting to share something. And in some ways that's this anchoring discipline that kind of is the, um, it's kind of like the eraser that brings everything back to to zero. And like, so the whiteboard might be full of a whole bunch of junk, but every time I get to do this, I know I'm doing what I was created to do. And when I get to receive the sacraments in communion with others, I'm reminded, like, this is really what matters. And there are times that when I come to church that my faith isn't that strong, but it's the faith of the community that sustains me. And so I I get the experience of uh, the paralyzed man whose four friends cut a hole in the roof, remember that story? And they lower him down, and Jesus says, uh, Jesus sees their faith, not the man's faith, but the faith of the four friends, and that's what Jesus sees and therefore saves the man. So it's the faith of those around him that save him. And for me as a pastor, like, yeah, I get to be the guy who's leading and, and on the stage and talking, but 
I don't think by any means I'm the most faithful person there. And I, I get this special invitation into the, some of the most intimate and the most uh, authentic moments that people have. And often in church, there are some amazing people that, that display in those moments uh, measures of faith that, that can be a huge blessing to me. And so I end up leaving the room as a person who's supposed to be blessing others, but I'm the one who's the most blessed. Yeah, I think that's huge. I want to dig in on that a little more with you because I, so this podcast isn't just for pastors. We're, we're currently talking kind of inside baseball, the two of us, because we're both pastors. Uh-huh. But I do think you've, you've hit on something that's not common. And that is your understanding that as, as the faith leader in the church, you have a lot to learn from the people you're leading. Yeah. I want to hear more from you on that. Well, I mean, it's the reason there's a chance I'm going to start interviewing you and again is because like you say something like, wow, that's genuinely interesting to me. Like that's, I'm not the sole possessor of wisdom or knowledge. And part of that comes from, I started really young. And I know you, you got your break as a chaplain doing ministry, and I got my break as an 18-year-old preaching. And so I've been preaching every Sunday for almost two decades now. And when you're the, when you're the kid in the room, either you become extremely arrogant, which there are moments that I did that, or you realize, hey, I'm not the only one that's got something to offer. And the more I got to understand who I was, the more I became... Uh, less intimidated by acknowledging the own my own limitations and realizing that there's other wisdom in the room. And sure, many of the people don't have, haven't received the opportunity to study scripture and to, to go to seminary and to learn theology and to interview the people I've interviewed and read the books I've read. And so they might not have some of the technical chops that I do, but they still have the ability to be faithful followers of Jesus. And I would be, I'd be a fool to, to miss that opportunity. And yeah, to not learn good. from them. Yeah, I think fr- from what I can tell, I think a lot of doubt is essentially some form of intellectual doubt. But you're really talking about the power of experience when you just get together with believers. It's you know, it feels like we're in such a cultural shift where so many people are leaving church, hurt, critical, and I empathize with it. They're not wrong. A lot of the hurt is real, and a lot of the criticism is valid. But I do show back up on Sunday and see Jack, the hotel manager, or Susie, you know, or just everyday people. And there's no question that they've bolstered my doubt, uh, my faith. It's yeah, a big deal. Yeah, I mean, you see their stories. And that's the thing, as the faith leader, you probably know a lot of things that are going on behind the scenes. And you don't know everything, but you know some things. And when you see the way they respond in light of that. And, and not everyone acts great. I mean, I've seen people who, who act like idiots and who, if, if people are going, if that's what a Christian, Christian is, I don't want anything to do with that. There are definitely those people. And let's not diminish the church's ability to have her own fair share of, of idiots. Like there, there's a certain quote of idiocracy in the world and the church gets her, her fair share of that. But there are also some really beautiful things that you see. And there, there was a time a few weeks ago uh, in service Sunday morning, I, I see someone worshiping. They're fully engaged in a, like a a visible t- like way, like an expressive w- worship. And and I know where they come from, and I know their story. And I actually had to stop looking their direction because I'm like, I, I got to go preach in a few seconds, and I don't want to walk up there crying. I just don't want to do it because seeing their faith was so moving to me. Yeah, that's good. Okay, let's talk about when you were fairly plagued by your doubt, and you're still getting up on a regular basis to preach. When was doubt for you 
the scariest? What what was going on then? I, I guess the scariest part is that I thought it would never go away, and that I thought it was like again, like we talked about earlier. I, I didn't think it was a stage. I thought this was my new normal. Yeah, and so my fear was what I'm going through right now is it, and that today is the only day, and this moment is the only moment that I'm ever going to have, and and I never saw a ray of hope. I never saw a, a crack in the door that it might ever open again. And so I thought this is just what it's going to be. And so I felt like I, I felt in that moment, I'm faced with the option of, do I become, you know, the pastor who thinks I just got to do this because it's a, it's a job or, or am I going to have to just give up and walk away? And so I didn't see that there was another option that I could learn to set aside these expectations, which were thwarting my faith and to receive what God actually is. I didn't see that. So you described that as a moment, but I'm suspecting it was more of an era. How long would you say that lasted? That's that's a really tough question for me because, th- like, there never was that singular like aha moment. And uh, so I've got a friend, another uh, Aussie, Aussie. Actually, he's a Kiwi. He lives in Australia. He lives in the Gold Coast now, but he's originally from New Zealand. So I had yeah. to learn the difference there. Sorry. Sorry yeah, about that. Yeah, big difference. Yeah. New Zealanders yeah. can't play cricket, but they're good with music. Yeah. Okay. Well, he's a, yeah. he used to be a musician, and now he's a yeah. filmmaker. So that's, that's fitting. Yeah, um, but he, so he's got this feature film he's making about the, uh, oh, you might know this, the, the, ba- the Bali Nine. The, yeah. Okay. So, uh, so he's working on this feature film for that, and he's got this um, couple of things that he needs to include in the story. But, there's too many characters to really uh, get into the the film to make it work. You just can't muddy the story by having all these different characters. And so what he talks about is creating this composite character that brings in different facets of these people that need to kind of pull the story along and push the, the narrative forward. In some way, like when you when you write, and theoretically, my book might be classified as art to some degree. But when you do art, like there, I think I describe moments as accurately as I could. But still, like when you write a book, you're trying to say this is a story, but it, it's it's hard to tell a story that fully encapsulates like this is an ongoing process. And I want to have stories that, that punctuate these moments, but it, it's a season, it's a phase. And, and so to make it like there was one moment that I, I felt to turn, I, I never did. I never had this one defining moment where, you know, like you have the picturesque moment where you're, you return home and the lights are on and all of a sudden everything's great. It was... In hindsight, I look back and I go, I'm, I'm not asking that question anymore, and I'm not in that season anymore, but I, I never knew when I crossed the finish line because I didn't, I didn't see a line. Yeah, okay. That's good. In the book, you connect doubt with cynicism. I thought that was a great connection. Tell us about what you see in cynicism and leaders and pastors, stuff like that. I almost said, oh, really? Tell me what I said because I don't remember what I said, but it's a great connection, like you said. Um, that. The thing about cynicism is that cynicism is never satisfied. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I'm ripping off some of the language from Habakkuk, where it talks about greed is as greedy as the grave. Like, it's always wanting more. And cynicism kind of does the same thing. Like, it's never, there's never a quota where it says, all right, we're good, we got it. And cynicism seems to be this, this arrogance that I know how the story's going to turn out. And it's like, I know every option. I know where the story's going to go. And so I'm not curious. I'm not engaged. I'm not open to the future or any other option because I've got it all figured out. And so cynicism was like, I, okay, I, I don't need to do this because I, I know how the story's going to go. I know the answers. I've read the books. And so it's it's all this way. And 
I, I feel like this is the this is how the the antithesis of curiosity, or how curiosity is the antithesis of cynicism, because curiosity is this quest for for more and to to be aware that there is possibilities and options and ways of life that you don't have figured out yet. And so you want to grasp and learn as much as you can. Or cynicism says, I've already mastered it all. Well, the reason I had you on the show is obviously we're all about managing anxiety. And on this show, we talk about internal anxiety inside somebody. We also talk on other episodes about uh, noticing anxiety in a group. And I thought it was really important to have someone coming on and talking about doubt because I think doubt, whether it's doubt in yourself or in this case, doubt in God, is a huge source of anxiety for leaders And every guest, I run them through the same gauntlet of questions. So if you're ready, I'll fire them off at you. Let's do it. All right. What kind of leadership situations generate anxiety in your life? You don't have to be exhaustive. Just give Mm -hmm. us a couple. Uh, When... So are are you an Enneagram person? Are you on board with the... Okay. So I'm an Enneagram 7. What are you in the Enneagram? Three. Yeah. I was... I already had the three up because that's, sure. that's probably what you are. Um, uh, as a seven, my fear is is the closing off of possibilities in the future. And so the thing that creates anxiety in me is this feeling like we're handcuffed and we aren't open and available to follow where God's leading us. And so my anxiety is is not when there's you know a big project to take on or not when there's a big task that needs to be completed, but when there is no room to accomplish anything or to move forward or to be faithful to what God's calling us to do. And so my greatest anxiety is when I get in the moment that I feel like I'm trapped or there, okay. there's no options for the future. Okay. Does that mean you get angry at leaders that aren't open-minded like that? Well, if I don't do my spiritual disciplines, I get angry at them and I'm not gracious and compassionate. I, I would say that those are the ones that give me those types of leaders or, or friends or coworkers give me the greatest opportunity to grow because it's not <laughs> the most natural. That's a very delicate way to say yes. Yeah, I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, one of my theories is that anxiety always starts physiologically and it starts in a different place for every person. So the options are uh, it starts in a spinning mind or a racing heart or a tightening gut. And it can be all three, but it usually starts in one place. Where does it start for you? Okay, can you tell me more about those? Yeah, the spinning I'll, mind. I will answer it, yeah. You can't stop thinking about it. Your solution to anxiety is just to worry harder. Uh, a racing heart is just a pure adrenal kind of uh, reaction. And then a tightening gut is like a physiological version of nervousness or, or a sickening feeling or almost a, sometimes people who have gone through tremendous trauma they feel it in their body before they feel it in their mind. I tend to be like a pretty much relegated to just thinking. That's where a lot of it comes from. And so I'd say that the spinning mind is spinning mind is definitely where I would struggle from. Did you did you come up with those three things on your own? I think so. I can never tell anymore because you just kind of get blends all together. Well, I'm probably similar to you. I'm a rabid researcher, and I do I try so hard to keep figuring out where I got ideas from. I think, 
I didn't grab it from the Enneagram. I think I grabbed it from watching my staff. Huh. Just trying to pay attention to when people are anxious and how to help them in it. And then paying attention to my own self. I'm, I'm a spinning mind guy. When I know I'm anxious because uh, when I'm heading off to sleep, I'm thinking about it. And as soon as I wake up in the morning, I'm thinking about it. And that's the sign I need an intervention. Hmm. What does an intervention look like for you? An intervention for me would be uh, I keep a fairly strict list of people, places, and activities that make me feel human and alive. It's actually a question coming up for you. Uh, so, for example, uh, reading theology, playing guitar, hugging my wife, calling a friend. And then it's, it's also more extensive stuff like going on a retreat with some nuns at the local monastery, fly fishing. Like I, I, I intentionally have a list of things that take five minutes and things that take three days and everything in between. And I've just discovered for me that my biggest challenge is I relate to God most as an employee more than a child. And so I have to work my list that reconnect me to being that God's my dad and that, that have nothing uh, to do with my ministry, if that makes sense. So even reading... That's, theo- yeah, that's really good. Yeah, even reading theology for me, uh, and this is all in my book, but uh, reading theology for me is like an act of worship. But I can tend to parlay it into a sermon. So there will be days where I'll read, and even if I learn something amazing, I'll never say it. I'll never preach it for my own soul. Yes, that's good. That's one of the things I'm wrestling with of you got to create things that are going to be sacred, that they, they don't they don't get worked into a story. They don't get worked into a post or anything. You've got to keep them for yourself, because otherwise, like the these transcendent moments get in some ways they get sullied because you can't fully communicate what God is. And when we try to turn God into word, when we think that we can take um, the flesh and put it into word that we in some ways like de-spiritualize the moments that we have. Yeah. I, so I'm 100% behind that. And there are things that right now I'm processing going, okay, I can't, I, I got to keep that one to myself. And I'm, uh, so I preached the same, uh, the same sermon a couple times at different places over the last three or four weeks. And I tell a very personal story about my daughter being in the hospital. And so I've told that so much and I think it's deeply moving. And I feel like it's, I think I'm being faithful in the sermon to to tell it. And I feel like it's the right thing to do, but there's part of me that's going, I don't want to keep telling this. I don't want to keep doing it because I fear that I'm stripping that moment away of its significance. Yeah, I think so. I think, I think at least for a preacher, when we teach it, we now have control over it. So instead of receiving it, we're kind of managing it. And I think that's what, to me, that's the dynamic that shrinks it down. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I had, how do you know when you're anxious? What are, what are the signs? How, how are you aware that you're an anxious in a moment of anxiety? I think you're thinking of, you're thinking about constantly thinking about stuff. If it's always in my head, uh, that's not a good good sign for me. If I'm taking it home, obviously, and I'm not leaving it where it needs to be, not in a sort of like I'm being unhealthy and running away from it. But okay, I've done the work on this. I put it put it to rest. Uh, but I'm keep checking back. Um, I think social media and just being on my phone is a trigger for me. And my phone, as many phones do, like tell you how much time you've been in front of the screen. And that's a great indicator for me. Uh, I know when I'm in the middle of stress, the easiest thing for me to do is to run away from it. And so I can just go get distracted and read about my Dallas Cowboys or whatever sporting news that I'm using just to, to, to prevent me from actually dealing with reality. So I, I think those are things I've noticed that gets me 
uh, aware of what I'm, what I'm doing dysfunctionally. Okay. That's good. All right. Next question. Uh, my theory is that leadership is fundamentally about vulnerability. I think the best leaders I know are the ones who are able to be vulnerable in front of people, which means that we make mistakes. And when we make mistakes, we make them publicly. So tell us about a recent mistake you've made and how you recovered from it. There's a premise, there's a follow-up question about leadership being about vulnerability, which I'm going to keep to myself in honor of the fact that this is your podcast, not mine, <laughs> but I have a question. Yeah, I think there are a lot, lot of leaders that, yeah. that appear to be very successful that are not vulnerable, but you're, you're trying to yeah. transcend that definition yes. of successful to a more substantive version of leadership, right? I think the leaders that you respect the most generally bring their whole humanity to their leadership. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly what I learned as a chaplain. I was useless as a chaplain until I brought all my pain and vulnerability into the room with me. Mm-hmm. And then I became a powerful pastoral presence. Yeah. Huh. Okay, let me answer your question. Um, mistakes I've made. You just need one. Um, so there's like the kind of the innocuous of... You know, I, I said something that in hindsight I could say, oh, wow, that was not at all what I was trying to say. Okay. Is that what you're looking for? You, you want more than that? Whatever you like. Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to give you a bad answer. I, I had, first thing that came to mind, I, a few months back was, um, here it is. I'll give you one. This is a little bit better one than that. I, the story I was going to tell you was I said something about, uh, God's okay with some people getting 10 talents and one getting some getting five and some getting one, like that biblical metaphor that God's not concerned about equity like we are. And I said it after making a reference to in the United States, not everyone is, was equal to vote when we created the constitution. And so it came across like, Oh, Luke's saying it's okay for black people to be treated worse than white people, which if you follow my work, that's completely inconsistent with what I think. But it was just a, it was a lapse of rhetorical judgment. Sure. A more substantial one is I have a story that I wrote for the book that did not get included because I wrote it about someone and my publisher said I didn't need to get approval from this person because uh, what I was referring to is public knowledge. But out of what I thought was charity. Uh, I sent this to some, the person anyway, and I said, Hey, I'm going to write this story. It's, it's about you. I I don't have to get your approval because it's like, this is public record and all that, but I I just want to be on the up and up with you. And he responds and says, yeah, I don't feel good about that. And I have not felt worse. That happened probably two years, a year and a half ago. Uh, maybe yeah, a year, year and a half ago. And I haven't felt worse about anything before since then in the last couple of years, it was, I felt like I was disrespecting this person's humanity and I was, um, I was glossing over the spiritual journey they had been on in a way that I didn't mean to. I felt like I'm, I felt like I was being charitable to them and and I still think I told the story. Okay. Um, but their response made me feel like you have done the most awful thing someone can do in our line of work. And that's to, um, dehumanize someone's journey and to devalue what what God is doing in their life. Okay, now that's a great example. So let's not go into the detail of the story. It's very clear. We, do, we don't want to know the content. Let's go into what's happening in your mind. You, you communicate with the person. The person comes back feeling hurt. There's a big gap between you feeling charitable and them feeling wounded and you suddenly realizing, holy crap. I screwed this up. What happens next for you? 
I, I get the email. Uh, I'm sitting in my truck outside my house. I'm wanting to get all my work done before I come in so I can be fully present with my kids. And I checked the email. He responds the day after I sent it to him. And immediately something just falls all over me. I come inside and I didn't respond. And Lindsay's like, what happened to you? Like she literally could just see on my face and in my, um, my countenance that I, I was literally not okay after that experience. And so I, my first thought was, I'm just going to spin this and make them a bad person. And so I'm going to change the narrative to go, okay, the blame is on them, not on me. And then I thought, okay, that's not healthy. Um, and so I just sat down, I'm going to own this. I'm going to feel these emotions, which I don't want to naturally do. I want to run from them, but I'm going to sit here. I'm going to feel this. I'm going to receive this and then I'm going to respond. And then I sent an email to the person. I said, Hey, I'm incredibly embarrassed. I'm so sorry. I'd never want to do that to you. And he quickly responds back and says, Luke, don't feel bad. I, I didn't take it personally. Uh, I, I, I just, you know, there's other reasons that, you know, yeah. I, I, I can communicate the story. You don't need to. Um, but I, I didn't take it as a personal affront on me. And so he immediately took the pain off my shoulders and he immediately like took the weight off, off me and, you know, made, I wouldn't say it's like copacetic, but it, it made it far more palatable as a situation. But it would be a whole lot easier for me just to go, ah, oh, that guy's a jackass. It's his fault. It's a great example. I, I feel like it's uh, reinforcing my theory that leadership's vulnerability. Cause I think to me, that's what makes for healthy leadership is most leaders, I think, move into hiding and blaming and you move through that and then the anxiety decreased. Mm-hmm. Why do you think most of us go to hiding and blaming? I, I blame Genesis 3 myself. Okay. I, I, think, uh, I think leaders, you have to keep putting yourself out there, especially when you're a preacher or a singer or you're, putting, you're, you're doing some kind of artistic endeavor in front of people. You know, you're critiqued and judged every week. It can wear you down. And I think, I think healthy leadership is, a, is about continuing to put yourself out there, make mistakes, do stupid things, own it, you know, right, look at it right in the eye and own it and then keep going. I think that's yeah. what it's about. I think so too. Yeah. It, it, you don't own it if you blame someone else. And if I was to say that person is the problem, then I never have to own that I could have done something wrong. Yeah, that's good. All right, man. Two questions to go. This is my most personal. <laughs> Hold on. That wasn't the most personal one. Oh goodness. Okay. No, it's, let's it's go. getting, it's getting worse. When, uh, when do you feel most loved in your life? Oh, that's not bad. That's an easy one. Um, my, my family, All right. uh, I returned home from a 10 or 11 day trip. Uh, Wednesday I was exhausted. And then Friday, Friday, we're leaving to be gone for three days again. This time I was bringing, uh, getting to go with my wife, but I was obviously not getting to bring my three daughters who were 10, seven, four, but I have an hour window. And so we turn on some vamp, some cartoon, I forget Transylvania three. That's what it was. And we turn it on. We have like a, a playroom upstairs. It's also kind of like our guest room. So there's like a, a trendle bed up there. And so I lay in the trendle bed and one of my daughters comes over and says, Oh, let me snuggle with you. And the other one comes over and says, Daddy, can I cuddle with you too? And then the third one, the four year old just kind of lays on my feet. And there's nothing better than that moment. Like there's literally nothing better than that moment of being with my daughters and being surrounded by, by love. And there's nothing like that for me. 
what activities and places make you feel most human and alive? I love preaching. I think that I feel alive when I do that. I'm a big fan of fitness and opportunities to, to work out, to swim, to be physical, to do yoga. Um, I, I'm deeply committed to them because it gets me out of my head and gets me into my body and it gets me away from just thinking. And if, for me, if I work out hard enough, I, I don't have the, the spinning brain like you're talking about before, like it just stops spinning. And I'm just like, okay, you got to breathe. You got to keep going. You got to stay right here, be present, be in this moment. There's something about physicality that helps me do that. Um, I, I typically have a lot going on. Like my, I just, there's a lot of energies for Enneagram seven. So it's not just me personally, but, um, and, and exercise kind of calms it down. Phone's not on, not working. That helps me a lot. All right. Good stuff. Luke, thanks a lot for your time. This was a great time. I really enjoyed uh, hanging out with you. It was my pleasure, Steve. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me. We would appreciate it if you'd make sure you subscribe to the podcast. That way you make sure you get every episode when we release it. And it would help us a great deal if you'd be willing just to take 30 seconds to a minute. Leave us an honest review on iTunes. Tell us what you think. This episode is a production of Steve Cuss. And-